Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Welcome, everybody. This is an interview that I have been looking forward to for a while now. And I was fortunate enough to speak with two guests from opposite sides of the spectrum of permaculture learning. Now, the first, Jeff Lawton, one of the original students of Bill Mollison and a permaculture designer and teacher for more than 30 years. And the second, Sam Parker Davies, an intern with Jeff at Zaytuna Farm in Australia, who has jumped in deep with permaculture learning, especially at the community level. In this interview, we talked in depth about the challenges and points of inspiration from each perspective experience. Jeff talks about inspiring regenerative projects at the community level and what it takes to get the ideas to really stick. Sam discusses his experience getting involved in local politics and even running for a seat on the city council. Jeff and I also talk about his experience and memories from working in our region of Guatemala many years ago with our friends at IMAP the Mesoamerican Institute of Permaculture, and gives great advice on gathering information and observing a site in depth before making assumptions. This is a great and nuanced discussion from both ends of the spectrum, and I'm sure anyone out there can relate to it on some level. So from here, I'll turn things over to Jeff and Sam. So I'm joined today with Jeff Lawton and Sam Parker Davies. How are you guys doing today? Good. Yeah, good. 
Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us today. Now, I've got tons of questions for the both of you, but before we get started, could each of you introduce yourselves a little bit and tell us how you got first into permaculture, because I know your journeys are at very different points right now. So, starting with Sam, go ahead. <laughs> um, so, my name is Sam Parker-Davies. I was born in the Blue Mountains of Australia, and um, ever since I was little, I wanted to be an environmental scientist, so it's something that's been with me for a long, long time. My grandmother did permaculture, but it was something that kind of came in blips on the radar. Um, I remember in year eight watching this video that gave me so much hope in a depressed state. Um, I was really down, and a geography teacher showed us this video about this man greening the desert somewhere in Jordan. And wanting to go to the Middle East from a very young age, it kind of like sparked um, so much life and hope and heart um, inside of me. From there, um, I went forward and uh, I was very active, very passionate about creating change. Um, and permaculture completely left my mind. I didn't realize um, anything I was doing had anything to do with that until when I was 18, I ran for council and a permaculture teacher in my town um, took me aside and told me about permaculture. Um, she's very much about um, the revolutionary side of social permaculture, about how we can create different um, social structures to change the world, um, which was what my campaign was about, was about how we can create empowered community to change um, the living structures in the local situation. So she educated me in permaculture and completely um, opened my whole world to this connected um, mass of people doing incredible things for the planet, completely changing our trajectory and paving a way forward that gives me so much life, so much hope, and fuels my ambition to do all the work that I can um, to aid this amazing cause. Um, now I'm living with Jeff after trying to support and sustain myself in the Blue Mountains off um, running workshops for kids and adults uh, in my little tent in my backyard so that I didn't have to pay rent and so I can make whatever <laughs> income I could. And so now I'm here seeking a, um, a wider education so that I can do the most good I can in the world going forward. Marvelous. That's a really quick trajectory in a short time. Now, Jeff, tell us about your background. Um, well, I'm, uh, I was born in England. Um, I grew up with uh, a lot of interest in, in the environment and uh, natural systems. Um, and most of my hobbies and pastimes relate to um, something to do with the environment. Uh, but I, um, I was 16 in 1970, so um, I lived through the 70s um, as a uh, adolescent, young adult, and uh, with all the dreams of uh, a new, new world and um, an alternative world, a counterculture, uh, reality kicked in. Um, as it does, especially in England, when you're um, not an academic. Um, and um, my um, my trade ended up being uh, mechanical engineering. And um, at a certain point, I um, got introduced to uh, surfing um, in the West Country and started to travel and visited a lot of places uh, where we could live um longer in the winter and escape the English winter in a warm surfing type location. And um, with that came a lot of um, Australian 
connections and Australian friends. I ended up emigrating to Australia in 1979 um, and uh, within the first 12 months realised I could work very hard and buy a farm, which was something that was unheard of in England um, at that time. Um, but I also got introduced to the very early permaculture movement um, and I just happened to settle in an area in the uh, Sunshine Coast, southern Queensland, where the uh, largest um, permaculture group in the world was in action. It's only 150 people. And uh, Max Lindegger was the champion of that group. Um, and um, that led me to take an introduction course um, and um, get involved. Um, as I was aiming as a hardworking immigrant to this country, um, I was determined to uh, make enough money to buy a farm, which I know was new as possible with this large landscape. Um, that led me to um, um, take a course with Bill Mollison in 1983 in Tasmania and um, purchased my first uh, property after a few entrepreneurial events um, of uh, just generally building up work in businesses and selling them on so I could buy a farm. Um, and then, um, the real learning started and, um, um, and I didn't teach till, um, for eight years. It was not 1991 before I started teaching. Uh, but I quickly, um, uh, realized that I seemed to have a talent as a teacher and, um, I got offered aid work overseas. Um, I reconnected with Bill when he moved from Tasmania to Northern New South Wales, only four hours away which is not far in Australia by car. Um, and then I was offered aid work and more aid work. And as I got successful results, more consultancy, eventually uh, when Bill wanted to retire back to Tasmania, he offered me the directorship or to manage the, the, the Permaculture Institute in northern New South Wales. And um, the rest is kind of history. I, I, I just kept, kept getting more and more results. It was kind of 1991 when I opted out of the conventional system and decided I was never going to compromise with uh, um, conventional business and and, um, and 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 standard modem operandi of of you know um, living in the consumption world. And I was only going to work as a permaculture teacher, consultant, and aid worker, and uh, project manager. And uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, and um, um, that sort of just led on with uh, resources gathering around me, most of them people, and some of them wonderful young people like Sam, who sat right here next to me. Um, and um, um, I'm so lucky to have such a, a, a fantastically large, broad team. Um, and um, most of them, a lot of them today are, uh, are in the IT field because we do a lot of online um, education and social media and, and these sort of things. Yeah, your outreach has gotten really good. In fact, I was on your last online PDC in order to brush up on some of my skills and get an idea for how you guys work on an online platform. And it's a, it's a really tight program. I've been impressed. Now, your trajectory has been fantastic. And it leads me into the next question that's actually coming from my friend and colleague, Shad Goodsey, the owner of Atitlan Organics, which is an eight-year-old off-grid permaculture farm here on Lake Atitlan, just up the hill from us. And you might even remember them because you highlighted them on social media a lot, not, uh, not a whole lot long ago. Now, 
He asks, what aspects of permaculture, after about a 30-year trajectory of working in the field, are you still most inspired to explore after, you know, all these decades of planting tons of trees and gardens and reshaping landscapes? What part of this is still pushing you to, to do more research and continue to push the boundaries of ecosystem regeneration? People systems, um, the, the, the social systems. Um, the same as uh, Sam's wonderful experience as a as a twenty year old. I'm a sixty four year old this year. Um, we're at the other uh, either end of the uh, of the age groups. Um, um, starting local permaculture uh, community groups um, is something I'm very passionate about, and I've got back into it. And we're uh, um, we're developing a startup kit for anywhere in the world uh, for uh, areas defined by local government. Um, where local government influences what influences what we can do. Um, that's a, a very much uh, an exciting area, um, and I'm also involved in setting up um, permaculture eco farming hamlets like Zaytuna Farm, which is now uh, transit transiting towards that 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 type of setup. Mm. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Designing the community on the ground because I love farming. I'm really practical person. I love being on the ground, um, and um, particularly in the perennial systems uh, and food forests, etc. But uh, local community groups is uh, um, a, a, such a, a courageous thing to engage in, um, and I have one that's over 25 years old um, that has evolved over time and has bred other groups, and that's a model that I'm I'm continuing continuing to um, refine and extend. And now I want to um, be able to um, um, offer a startup kit for anybody to take the same um, system going forward. We need, um, we need one in every local government area on this planet as uh, an example of uh, the people who vote in a government and, and what they actually need, need to express their, 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 their needs are. Absolutely. Yeah, that is very inspiring. Now, the flip side for you, Sam, just getting started in your permaculture career, where do you draw your inspiration from? And where do you really want to move towards going forward? Well, I'm definitely inspired by Jeff's work, greening the desert, um, bioremediation and um, desertification work insofar as the landscapes is definitely something I want to learn as much as I can about. Fungi being such an unexplored area. Um, so anything I can learn to help um, pillaged and destroyed landscapes because they're growing. Um, so anything that can be done to regenerate these these things into um, places that help animals, plants and people to thrive and to do well, for nature to be at its optimum, to create an abundance on earth that pulls my heart in the biggest way. So therefore food forests. Um, but insofar as the extent of that, I think people are what's going to make it happen. So this is the passion that pulls me the most, is um, the way that we can create people ecosystems like Jeff's 25-year-old social food forest in, um, in the Sunshine Coast, to have these models spreading further and further where we can have interactive communities that know each other, that support each other, just like a diverse ecosystem, that can look after, after each other and connected by a web. Um, these things are invaluable. As we move forward, isolation just isn't going to cut it. People doing things by themselves aren't going to make the impact that needs to be made. Uh, so the more we can do in connecting people in a common cause, giving people hope and letting them know 
um, that this is actually something that has momentum and is moving forward, that no one doing this work is isolated, no one who has these hopes and dreams is alone. Uh, this is the most essential thing for me. Uh, so the more we can actually create opportunities for food forestry and um, global abundance. Wonderful, Sam. Yeah, that's really well said. And I, I really echo both of your passion towards the community and the social side of working with people to advance these permaculture goals. Now, beyond the physical conventions in the land, the structures and the barriers that prevent some of our ambitions on land-based projects, um, taking the next step and creating communities to advance your vision comes with a lot of uh, intricacies and, and challenges as well. How have both of you found success in working at the community and the personal level to help to advance this goal of landscape regeneration and healthier economies and communities? Well, it, it, a lot of it's about tolerance and being able to listen uh, what, uh, to what people need. And, and, and like any design, it's a matter of allowing your group to demonstrate its evolutions. So, you know, you have to allow uh, um, the ecosystem to, to evolve, um, whether it's, you know, a food forest or it's a, a food forest of people. Um, there's, um, Could you clarify that idea? Tell me what you mean by a food forest of people. Well, it, it, it doesn't work if, if, if you have everybody from the same age group and subculture it has to be a diversity of people so that way you influence local politicians so when a local politician comes into a room where a hundred people meet once a month and there's always at least a hundred people and there's every age group of people every profession of people um you know there's people from different backgrounds um and um, um there's there's people from different socioeconomic um areas it, it it's a great diversity and that's what looks like a massive voting block because the politician then sees every person in that room as 20 voters who think the same way so they better understand what you're uh, what you're about otherwise they're looking political death in the eye so it's one way of passively holding our politicians accountable um and um they, they need to know what you're about and, and what you what why you meet so um as, as a regular, well-attended group of people and what you then do. Now, what you do is you listen to each other and, and what is required. So people may meet and they say, well, you know, like we're growing all this stuff. You you know, we've uh, passed on information. Um, you know, you might have, say, you might have some ground rules, um, like we meet at the same time every month at the same place. We keep information uh, about what has been successful and what has failed so we can share that information. Uh, we keep education at the centre of the group uh, with the PDC, the Permaculture Design Certificate course, as, the, as the, the, the main education component. And that can be a part-time course, so everybody's a local who attends. But then there can be all these different specialist courses. Um, and um, we keep promoting permaculture in, in home gardens, small acreage, large farms, streetscapes, and even industrial areas. But then we might, you might then find that once you start developing, and I think you will find that people will say, well, we might be growing all these new things and developing all this stuff, but, you know, how, how do we process it or how do we 
what what are the best recipes to 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 create to cook this stuff or preserve this stuff or ferment this stuff? So those are extra mm, workshops. Yeah, yeah. And that ends up being um, you know cooking workshops, processing workshops, but that also ends up being a a, a recipe book for the local group and the local area, and it has a place and a date on it at least a month. So it's the, the place where the group is, is is centered with 12 months of the year, uh, one recipe book for each month, because those are the, in that month, only certain things are ripe. Some things are of ripe course. all the time, but some things are only ripe in a certain period of time. And then all the recipes are relevant. So that is an evolution, w- which often is requested. So in many groups, you know, you have that local recipe book created that has a place and 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 month of the year relevance 12 re- recipe books and and on you go listening to what your local community require just like you 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 look at the responses of a perennial ecosystem i.e a food forest and see what grows well in the shade and what doesn't what needs more sun what grows in little open spaces what cl- what are the better climbers what are the better fruit trees etc etc and you extend on successes and you reduce failures marvelous do you have anything to Add to that, Sam, have you discovered any uh, barriers or challenges when you are working on a community scale or a social scale in helping to promote permaculture within communities? Yeah, I think a prime example is living at Jeff's farm. Community, community living, when you're not accustomed to it, is hard. There's lots of things that you have to learn about yourself and about um, interacting with people that has to happen quickly because people are diverse. We have from here people from all over the world with all different persuasions, the only thing connecting and uniting them being permaculture. And this is the same throughout the whole world now as our, um, as our cultures diversify and become uh, broader and broader insofar as the people that it contains. So we have to learn to adapt. We have to learn to be like our forests which is tying back into a discussion before with what a social food forest is, is it's an abundant social system is how I understand it and see it. We don't want to create social deserts. We don't want to create social monocultures where everyone nods and just allows things to happen, which is what we've seen. We see a situation where people don't feel that they have power to grow and diversify themselves. They don't have the power to be um, abundant like a forest or to create the things that they um, need to see and do in the world. We we might have a constitution of generally how we behave, like the grand rules, the basic grand rules. But then we might have bylaws, and we agree on on bylaws. They can be flexible. And and here it's like there are things like you know, um, we we switch roles at times. You know, we work on small animals, we work on large animals, we work on crop systems, we work on natural fertilizer, we work on nursery systems, we work on food forests, we work on infrastructure um and then we switch around uh, but we also work on there are times when we we all work together uh, before breakfast for two hours and then we uh, we have three meals a day together mm. um you know uh, there's an average of 30 people on this property so we f- we serve from our kitchen thirty thousand meals a year um and and not everybody's a meat eater, but many are. I'm a meat eater, um, and 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 Sam's a, a vegan, but we eat together. It's okay. We tolerate each other over that. And uh, Sam knows animals are processed, and um, that's okay. Um, 
and um, we don't attack each other over it. But we all clean together and we all agree how we use the compost toilets and we all, all agree how we behave. And we and we agree on what we don't do. We, we don't have alcohol and drugs on the property because everybody needs to have a clear head. We're all very serious about what we do. We agree on when we use the washing machine, um, let's say, uh, because we're completely off grid. We're all on battery solar. Here we have nickel iron battery banks and lots of solar panels. But we all know that you can't use ridiculous amounts of electricity once the sun's gone down. And we're all on our own drinking water. And we're all on compost toilets, and we're all on reed bed grey water. There, there are obvious rules of how how you work with that, and um, and it's pretty obvious if you don't understand it, people will help you. And if you don't want to, if it doesn't work for you, then you don't you, you're not going to fit in, and and that's okay, that's fine. It's, some people won't. That's all right. Um, so we've we've got those things sort of worked out. I I'll think. Just, <laughs> I'll just quickly expand on um, other challenges in living in community or, or doing community projects um, can be our own conditioning and our own bias, which is something we need to really hold ourselves accountable for. Mm. Um, when I uh, ran for council, I had this understanding or this um, bias towards um, the council and towards politicians. I had this idea that it was all their fault, um, the situation that we were in, and it was um, a really steep learning curve because uh, people who are invested in um, the local council don't want to hear your criticism and will will take you down uh, if if you say it too loud. And so it became a real awareness for me that for me to um, utilise like um, permaculture teachers to um, see the problem as the solution, to um, work with nature's strengths rather than against it, and seeing um, seeing the council is like a dense jungle that I've got to somehow find my way into or um, a big open desert that I've got to secure some sort of water in. Um, I had to adapt myself um, to that situation and become compassionate and understanding of um, people's worldviews. I was standing outside a ticketing booth with people of all different um, cultural and uh, political orientations um, hand, handing out tickets and having fights from what I understood was ultimately they wanted the best things that they understood to be for the world. Someone wanted it through money and jobs, another wanted it through environmental protection, another wanted it from unions, whatever. Um, it was just different language, different lingo and a different um, understanding for the same thing that they felt that they couldn't implement and therefore a politician had to. Um, I've found living in this community, um, as long with living in other communities, that the more empowered people are to just do uh, what they feel they need to do in order to support and help the world, the more there's a common culture of um, caring for one another because you know one another, because you see the other go through, you're not isolated in your own apartment or your own box, not knowing your neighbour. The more you can create a culture of care um, and connection empowerment then the more things just get done rather than relying on a government to do it and i think that this is one of the biggest challenges we face is a common idea or a common culture of blame well i think that's a remarkable insight and an incredible opportunity to have gotten an experience with so early in your learning and my question then would be what is the challenge of getting regenerative land management permaculture and economic policies 
implemented on a government level? I know at this point you've both mentioned that it's something that needs to happen, but do you find it more worthwhile to go directly to that channel or better perhaps to stay focused on grassroots initiatives? I think you've got to set examples because we're in the information age and you know we're in the YouTube age and the, and the, and the Facebook age and the Instagram age and everything's high definition even out of a phone. So um, it, the evidence is obvious. Um, and um, in in every way, so you know your glory shots of, of of regeneration, your glory shots of of, of recovery, your glory shots of community, mm. um, are all believable out out of a mobile smartphone today, and that's gone right out through the world to every community, even some of the poorest and some of the rem- most remote. Um, so it obviously is seen by government, um, and um, it can't. It, it's at a stage where it can't really be ignored. So. We can stay at grassroots and still be global. Uh, I would say um, grassroots is the only real way to make things happen. Like before, um, saying uh, that we live in a common culture of blind or that that seems to be the biggest inhibitor is is just that, is the more we can step out of blame and um, more into affirmative action of just doing because it's what the world needs and because what will satisfy us, give us greater happiness and greater joy in our lives. Um, it's a good reason to do anything, really, um, especially something that makes the world incredible. Uh, so for us to to take affirmative action for ourselves is, I think, much more powerful um, worldwide than a government doing it. Well, it also seems to me like it's a good sort of litmus test or um, kind of a, a way of finding out whether your initiatives or your projects can really take root in, in a community is by trying them out uh, first at the at the personal level and seeing how it's adopted and if it continues to move forward with any steam sort of after the initial excitement of getting a project started and then maybe from there once the concept is proven it's something that you can take to a higher platform yeah what's that all about yeah yeah but um if we can do it in a seditious way then that's fine too we don't need the government to do what we need to do and, um, and it's kind of very hard for for them to stop us as well, especially if we do it en masse. At, at the same time, like uh, I understand if we were to do a, a social um, site analysis and we see um, the government or the council as a, as a climatic factor or um, some sort of factor affecting um, us, then we must um, use that to our benefit. And this is where um, the resources, um, connections to council uh, can be a beautiful, wonderful thing where them supporting and actively engaging in what we're doing is not something we should ever say no to, uh, which is why um, these these projects on the ground, these grassroots projects, to have um, government engagement happening in, in some places, not happening in others, but even just a, a twinkle of it, is uh, a more than exciting thing. Yeah, those are some great insights. And now that we've talked a lot about some of the larger ideas of moving forward with communities and instilling inspiration and 
kind of spreading these ideas, let's take a little step back now and talk about some of the technical aspects um, that make these things happen. Now, Jeff, I know that you came to Guatemala quite a few years back, and I'm specifically wondering what your impression of the country here was, and some of your thoughts on the relevance, especially of permaculture, to the indigenous communities here in Guatemala, because there are very few countries around the world that still have such a high percentage of the population of indigenous people who are still connected to their traditions and their culture? Oh, well, I think, I think it's extremely relevant. The, la- the land um, distribution, um, as, I, as I understand it, and it was a while ago I was there, um, was uh, something that was quite restrictive. People were walking a very long way to small blocks of land from very small blocks of land within town. So and and they kind of lost concentration on their very small blocks of land, and um, most people were involved in a in 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 a coffee culture. Um, so there was a sort of small small sort of two acre coffee culture mentality, uh, where people sort of felt that that was you know to be rich was to do well in coffee, and um, and all the blocks were a long way from from where people lived, um, and. Um, that that made things quite awkward um but in the early stages we were able to encourage people to go not only organic but into um more diverse systems that are um nice simple but elegant food forest type assemblies um to at least make their 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 small coffee plantations more sustainable I mean, there was obviously um, enormous amounts of um, land that was way too steep being cultivated, um, as I remember, and um, and 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 you know just those difficulties with with the way the land was distributed and way people had got used to you know walking so far out to their blocks. No, that's a pretty accurate description of many of the challenges that are still going on in this region. Now, obviously, it's an extremely diverse country and one of the most biodiverse regions anywhere in the world. But you described it very well, especially where we are, that that is one of the continuing challenges of this region. Uh, these cafetal systems, which are, are all over the valley in Sununa, where we live here as well, that are kind of minimally tended and harvested once, sometimes twice a year, depending on the season and the breed. And uh, I'm working with a lot of organizations, especially uh, Atitlan Organics and EMAP, which you helped to found back in the 90s, if, uh, if I remember correctly. And both of those organizations are really pushing forward to help uh, polyculture and more diverse systems within the cash crop model of coffee production Uh, as well as the production of some more indigenous food sources, as well as seed saving. So could you tell us a little bit about how you first got uh, the Mesoamerican Institute of Permaculture started and how that process really took hold? Well, I was invited in by Permaculture America Latina to uh, teach a course there, and my um, administrator didn't make it in uh, because he didn't get his visa um, and was never allowed into Guatemala. So I was stuck with a young Australian translator and I had to pull it off myself. Um, and it was a difficult block of land uh, because it flooded. It was the ex-army camp um, during the conflict um, as the uh, uh, the barrier sort of section going into um, um, uh, San Lucas Tolliman. Um, but um, we 
We put Force Wales through the system. I designed it up. I taught a PDC, a Permaculture Design Certificate course. Um, I explained the benefit of swells to reduce the um, flooding and sink the water into the ground and uh, put in more perennial systems um, as an example. We actually didn't do a lot of coffee in that in that zone. It was more diverse than that because it was right, on the, in, right in town, really, just on the edge, in, inner edge of town. Um, we actually linked into the abattoir next door and got quite a lot of manure in the top swell. Um, the next year I came back, uh, almost exactly a year later, and they'd finished off the refined design earthworks. And I immediately, the moment I woke up in the morning um, in, in, a, in, a, in a repurposed grain silo, which was an ex, uh, an ex aid project. I mean, the whole project was surrounded by failed aid projects going back to the 50s, which is quite normal if anybody's worked in aid. You know, there's just endless sort of aid infrastructure mm, fading yeah. away. And um, and I, I woke up in this, um, um, I come in at night and I woke up with this quite good view from this um, grain silo that had been turned into a two-story accommodation, fitted out with silky oak, uh, what you call gravilea there, Mm -hmm. uh, Gravilia robusta, mm -hmm. which is an Australian tree endemic to where we are talking to you right now. Um, Isn't that and, uh, remarkable? Nobody knew said, that you could use it for timber. It had been cut for a high pollard over the coffee as a shade coffee, and and only I think the uh, you know the plantation owners were taking the uh, high quality timber. But I I I told everybody that, and uh, so I was in this beautiful fitted out two story accommodation, and I looked out the window, and immediately I thought. I don't need to be here. Um, they already know exactly what. I'm Isn't that a nice feeling? Ironically, it was. It was wonderful. I mean, I, I walked out on my own. I can remember it quite distinctly. I got stung by a bee as well, right in between my thumb and my forefinger as I put my hand in my pocket. It must have been oh, no. on the rim of my hip pocket. It kind of gave me a little bit of sting symbiosis. I thought that's quite a bit of Guatemala. I'm not going to easily get, <laughs> and 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 it didn't worry me. And I'm walking around thinking, I really don't have to be here. These guys have really, really got it. I mean, they've just totally got it. Um, and I knew Ronaldo Lech, a hot would would you know totally connected to the Kachakil people. And he his ambition was to get it out to all the five Mesoamerican countries and all the, you know, um, the, the main indigenous people. But the thing is that many things have happened since then in the world of permaculture. We were interviewing Eric Tonesmeyer just the other day, mm. who, who, who co-wrote the book with Dave Jackie, uh, Forest Gardening, and he's done some incredible work and he's publishing more work, um, which is he is literally one of the great permaculture mavins. He's now a <laughs> Yale, Yale lecturer on food forests, agroforestry, food forestry. Now, he said that he now has proof that that when you take a monoculture like palm oil or coffee or cacao into a polyculture, you actually increase the production of the original monoculture, mm. and you get the additional polycultural yields. So this is this is now becoming things that have been well researched and are now proven. So you know, there's there's absolutely no reason not to make that conversion over all of these lands and get out of this crazy monocultural situation because it's not as productive. It's obviously mm. not as stable. Mm. Now, that, that gives you extra yield, but it also gives you time to do things traditionally back at, at your home base because if you look at Permaculture 2, 
actually, uh, yeah, no, is it Permaculture 1 or Permaculture 2? The original books that Bill wrote, the first garden that Bill honours is a Guatemalan, traditional Guatemalan home garden and mm -hmm. all its polycultural elements. So it's actually in the tradition of Guatemala. Now, just to finish this little story off, the testament of this, after that second visit, not long after, I was still in touch. I mean, I haven't needed to be in touch because if I wanted to come to Guatemala and see the guys at IMAP, it would be for me to learn about permaculture in Guatemala, not for mm. me to teach them. Yeah. That's for sure. They'd know more about permaculture in Guatemala than I'll ever know. I'm just, you know, a rough mainframe designer who's sp spread all over the world, basically lighting fires in people's minds and activities. But after that second visit, next year you had Hurricane Mitch. And Hurricane Mitch came in over the Gulf of Mexico, out of the Caribbean, and sat right on top of Guatemala and dumped about eight meters of rain mm. right down on that region. And I'm thinking, wow, what the hell happened? So I got in touch. I, I sat, it was kind of early internet days. So I got in touch and I said, what happened? What happened? Like, you know, what? How did it handle it? And it starts just amazing. It handled it perfect. Yes, we got it flooded, but it handled the flood. And, and we harvested about, you know, 30 meters of high quality soil, which has now raised us further out of the flood because we've just pulled that out of the swell trenches and spread it over the land and we're getting higher every time one of those things wants to dump on us. And it was yeah, that exactly. easy. Like the biggest problem that happened, landslips, desert devastation everywhere. And 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 our site got a benefit. And that's recently happened last year here where we had Cyclone Debbie hit us here with nowhere near that amount of rain, but we had massive floods here. I've recently made a video about it. And and yeah, our landscape it fell apart, but we actually had nothing. <laughs> we gained soil. So this is, you know, talk about turn the problem into the solution. It's literally there in action. We need to make, you know, you need to make films about these things and, and make it blatantly obvious in high def and cartoons <laughs> and every other way you can transfer information. So, you know, uh, because people believe screens more than they believe reality. You can walk people around the real landscape, and a lot of them just literally cannot see it. But they will see it on screen, and then they'll go to learn how to see it because it is it, it is a change in the way you see the world. It literally is, literally with your eyes. It's a way you use your, literally use your eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Those types of examples are really inspiring, and we've had a lot of cases like that here in our valley as well with designs that we've done ourselves and that some of our clients has, have run with on their own, those big weather events, which previously were big erosive forces and were damaging the land when certain, you know, almost chiropractic adjustments are made to handle that type of a hit, absorb the nutrients, and especially for the fact that so many of the surrounding properties are not managed the same way, their loss is the gain for these properties that have implemented these systems and shifted towards a more resilient way of dealing with large weather events, which, you know, as we all know, are becoming much more frequent as well. So a time for change and implementation of these is, is very urgent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So now you mentioned earlier, you know, now that they've become established and uh, have really run with some of the initial ideas that you helped to propagate in this area as far as permaculture design, you also mentioned that you're somewhat of a mainframe 
operator and your main job is to sort of instill inspiration and light a fire in the places that you go but within that there are still some general broad strokes that can be made in most regions in order to help make uh, a transition and create resilience in the landscape could you talk about some of those broad strokes and Sam maybe some of your own observations as you're learning as well that apply to a lot of regions and are generally true across differences in climate and geography? Yeah. Um, well, for me, it's uh, water, access, and structures. Um, water is uh, um, an, uh, such a crucial element for life, um, and um, obviously. And um, it behaves in uh, quite a few constant ways. Um, and when um, anything in this uh, universe acts in a constant way, um, then it becomes a, a secure element to design. So water acts in quite a few ways um, with evaporation, um, cooling the air and condensation, warming the air and water sitting perfectly level and not moving uphill for free, but flowing out on contour, soaking in and only traveling at right angle to contour through the landscape, even when it's moving so slowly un underground. Those ways of designing water so it's pacified, taking the longest path over the most distance, moving as slowly as possible, with as much passive friction as you can achieve, rubbing up against as many beneficial living elements as possible, is, is a sort of approach to water, picking up as much hardware as possible where water runs off, you know, hunting, 100% runoff surfaces and, and pacifying it and spreading it and soaking it. So what Brad Lancaster in Tucson, Arizona calls planting the rain, uh, planting the runoff, or even planting surplus irrigation, um, and then offering those options. Now, now, then those patterns are reasonably constant because the landscape itself is a continuum of form shaped by the cosmic forces, millennia of 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 of, of, of meteorological events, weather events. So then you, your your access has to compromise with that, has to cooperate with that, uh, has to run in 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 harmony with it, um, and and your access can be a, a benefit to the water itself. Um, but and it has costs. And in different cultures, in different worlds, it has different costs and it comes in different forms. And a lot of places in the developed world, it definitely involves motor vehicles. Um, and then there are minor access uh, branch ways. They, they all can be designed uh, to harmonize with water and cooperate with the water design. And then it becomes very obvious where your infrastructure options are. Now, those those uh, infrastructure itself has to be well designed in relation to both climate and landscape. So, it, it, you know, good infrastructure works well with climate and the landscape that you're working in. And then you've got a pretty good mainframe. Now, obviously, the next thing in is who's your client and, um, and uh, what is their requirements? And you may have to um, find out what's their budget. Um, what's their time frame? What's their availability of of um, of um, um, involvement, and um, and what's their experience? And you've got a basic mainframe. Whether you wherever you're talking about it, size of land obviously comes into play as well there. Um, but 
um, you know, whether you're talking about a client in different countries or a community in different countries or a, or a government in different countries or a corporation in different countries, whatever they're trying to design, uh, whatever their ambitions are, they're, they're, that's, that's kind of a mainframe approach. It doesn't matter whether you're building a city or a giant new industrial, you know, economic zone or whatever it is. Something that recurringly comes up in permaculture that I can't see as um, as ever being something that could leave because I think it's the most revolutionary part of permaculture way of thinking is, is pattern recognition. Um, recognizing these water patterns. Je Jeff talks about patterns being the glue of permaculture because you can see how patterns going across all disciplines, all um ways of thinking how the patterns really influence your relationship not only to nature but to the land that you're designing um, to life and um, everything in general so as we cultivate a greater understanding of what patterns are whether that's weather patterns whether that's um, patterns in the soil um, or whatever else then these things are things that we can foster they're the constants um, they're the continuous things that help us live. I'm glad to hear those answers from both of you and uh, we reflect a lot of these priorities as well in the design criteria checklist that we recently published so if anybody wants to take a look at those I'll put the link to that in the show notes for this episode. Now going back and taking maybe a little bit more of a specific look at the parallels between our similar ecosystems here for us in the highlands in Guatemala and you in uh, your kind of central coastal region of Australia. We are here in uh, the high, sorry, <laughs> we're here in the high elevation subtropics in sort of a wet, dry climate. We're currently in the wet portion right now and we're getting a lot of rain this time of year. Obviously, there are quite, um, quite significant differences in geological formations and, and uh, details within the climactic system. But Jeff, have you seen many other uh, climates like this with very successful polyculture systems and perennial systems that have found a lot of success within these parameters? Oh, yeah. Yeah, your climate analog that I remember, I think, is uh, you're eight degrees north of the equator and 2,000 meters above sea level. Um, and uh, you'd be about 200 kilometers from the Pacific Ocean? Yep. Pretty pretty similar situations, almost exactly to that of EMAP. Yeah, that, that's what I'm quite Something like that. And, and if you drive from um, San Lucas Tolliman downhill towards the west, um, in 15 minutes, you're in the tropics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it descends in elevation very quickly. Because you're so high, uh, 2,000 meters, you're in the subtropics, but you have a tropical day length. So you don't have an extended um, winter. Uh, you don't have a, an, uh, an extended summer or, or, or shortened winter day length. Um, so the sun, um, so you have a tropical sun angle, um, but you have uh, a temperature range which is subtropics because of altitude because every 100 meters is uh, one meter of latitude. Exactly. Um, so um, that's a nice climate. Um and if you keep going up, you've got temperate climate crops that will grow, but they won't flower because the day length doesn't change. So that's always something you've got to take into consideration. 
That has been one of the challenges. Yeah, we were growing a lot of things that do well in various other climates, but because of the shorter days and the lack of frost, a lot of these things don't end up going out to seed or maturing in the same way. So it's fashion crop, which is well known on the television, which has turned our um, consuming global population into uh, a generic expectation of what they eat. You know, where when you um, when you look at some of the things that Eric Tosmeyer's researching, I mean, it goes right out to you know edible willow leaves that grow. Uh, on the edge of the Arctic Circle, mm. on the edge of the tree line, and and you probably find there's hundreds of perennial crops that nobody eats that are possible to grow right where you are that don't worry at all about day length. Um, but no one would want to, no one want to buy them because they don't know what they are. And there's there's a whole education process that creates an identity for your region which is unique. But like, and that's what makes things sell really is having the unique story and stop going for the generic. Mm. Um, um the, the generic identity i mean we don't want to all be generic humans because there is such wonderful diverse or diverse potential and 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 you are in a classic volcanic country i think it's four volcanoes around lake atilan yeah and if you were paying attention the the uh volcan fuego just went off and there was a major international disaster here for quite a while yeah, well, I always remember digging in the soil and looking at some of the crops and thinking, why aren't strawberries growing so well? This is all indicating you've got lots of rainfall, you've got rich, beautiful, rich, deep soil, everything looks like it's humid and acid, and why is it indicating alkalinity? And kind of scratching my head as I looked up in the air and thought, there's a smoking volcano, there's another <laughs> one, there's another, hold on a minute, of course, it's volcanic yeah, ash. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's alkaline. And why didn't I think that it was alkaline? How stupid am I? I mean, you know, these are the lessons that never leave you. And I never, never, never assume a pH scale until I'm absolutely sure. Yeah, there's such unique factors here, exactly like you mentioned. You can have swamps and deserts that are acid, and, and deserts are oceans of alkalinity, but it can be an island of acidity in, in a swamp. Um, and, and there are swamps in deserts. You know, you know, there are famous swamps in deserts. And here you have um, a climate that's obviously mostly acid, but with so much volcanisms, recent volcanisms, it's all volcanic ash. So, you know, you've got to start adapting to that. Um, and, and you can. It's fine. You know, but um, you've just got to have those clues. Um, become aware of it. Um, we're, we're at latitude 28 here, south of the equator. We're 45 kilometers from the um, uh, Pacific Ocean, and we're only 20 meters above sea level at the bottom of the property, and we're 83 at the top of the property. So um, there are things we would share in crops, but there are things that we definitely don't share. And that's a fantastic thing because I really loved what you mentioned is one of the things that we focus on with our uh, demonstration site here is, yeah, it's tragic how homogenized the global food system has become and Guatemala with its very resilient ecosystem because of the rainfall that we get and the health of the soils in a lot of places where they haven't been damaged um, 
has been producing so many of these foods that are all for export value. Everything from kind of low quality potatoes, broccolis, uh, tomatoes and such, which are not indigenous to here, but there's a global market for. So people are growing and as a result, severely degrading their soils. Uh, we're trying to promote not only heritage breeds of things that have market value, but also bringing back to sort of it hasn't really fallen out of respect, but back to some of the prominence of the heritage and indigenous species that are endemic to the traditional diet of this area and showing that there's a, a whole variety of plants that may not be very well understood in Western diets, but that grow really well here, oftentimes are perennial, very, very high producing, extremely nutritious and absolutely delicious and it's just a matter of education to get those back into prominence and popularity so that we can start growing things here again that do well need less maintenance and rebuild the soil in the ecosystem yeah and there'd be a lot of global indigenous plants that in, from the similar analogs that do well there too um so doing a climate analog uh, for your zone would probably link you to places like new guinea um, which would have similar altitudes at similar latitudes, or some parts of the South Pacific um, would have um, um, similar analogs. Uh, these are all interesting things to uh, compare, and um, and uh, rather than introduce non-natives uh, that are not suited, introduce um, non-natives that are from um, the same analogs, which will be um, just as stable as, as the endemic and, and, and increase the diversity beyond what it's ever been before. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we can go back into the geopolitical history of this region, which I've been studying up on a little bit more recently. It is absolutely fascinating how uh, this became a major coffee producing country when coffee is originally from Ethiopia and Eastern Africa. And the indigenous crop here, the heritage versions of cacao, are much less uh, prominent in the production of Guatemala, but obviously have moved over, especially in Western Africa, to being one of the higher producing areas around the world. And just how, you know, co um, colonization and global trade has caused that switch to me is fascinating. And working within sort of how both of these regions are developing and reestablishing some of the native crops has been a big inspiration of mine lately. Yeah. And, and, and gourmet coffee now is averaging some very, very high prices if you go in that direction too. Yeah. Uh, yep. um, you know, there's um, 602 American dollars for a pound of unprocessed coffee was the world record just set last year. And where's that coming from? Uh, that's out of Colombia, I think. And, and there are mm. Colombian produce, mm. small producers averaging $250 a pound un, unroasted. Uh, that's because remarkable. of the the level and quality and food forest coffee is fetching some of the highest. It's always diverse coffee production. These are small producers, just like in Guatemala. Uh, but but for the the real gourmet market, um, organic, of course, um, extremely diverse production, um, and and partic particular cultivars, um, and and particular um, potential ways of, of initial process, but not roasted. Um, so I've been working with people in Colombia, students of mine, on this who've, who've been trying to help uh, Colombian producers to gain a better uh, uh, price for their product, and th and they've done pretty well. 
Yeah, it's remarkable how some of these major commodity plants around the world work so extremely well in agroforestry and polyculture systems as they're integrated in with other species that sort of co-evolve with them, help to build soil, and act towards the health of all of the species within the system. Um, that's been, you know, one of our real initiatives that we are trying to push around here, especially in partnership with uh, the Mesoamerican Institute of Permaculture, like you mentioned, and I. Uh, Titlan Organics, and uh, helping to constantly observe, which obviously is one of the main traits for a good designer, and seeing which of these interactive companion planting systems interact well within the micro differences and the micro climates, um, even just being on the other side of the lake from, from IMAP. There are a lot of differences in our soils. There are differences in the way that the land or the sun touches the land throughout the day. And those can actually foster or inhibit the relationships between some of the polycultures that each one of us are, are working on. Especially with your steep slopes. Yeah, and extremely rocky soil where we're at too. So we haven't focused so much on large cash crops because we're doing a very biointensive method on a half acre. And we're working with... Uh, especially goats right now, and one of the major economic uh, outputs or enterprises from our farm at the moment is milk, yogurt, and cheese, which we all make from the goats that go around and graze freely around the landscape here in the mountains, and they do extremely well in this climate and with the terrain that we have, whereas other ruminants and different uh, animals that maybe were brought from a different environment struggle with as well. So now, going on to sort of explore some of the other challenges and the limitations of moving forward. Where have you both found the most success when it comes to inspiring real change in the communities? Is it things like food sovereignty, debt-free housing? I know, Sam, you've worked a lot with sustainable housing, uh, perhaps reconnecting with nature, or is it something else? Um, I think it's something tangible. I think it's something real. I think it's something different to the norm and something that affects people directly, which is why a diversity of approaches is so important because we're a diverse world of people. Um, I think things that connect people together, uh, a fantastic thing is um, transition towns. Uh, they're doing a lot of work and they found that the thing that's um, of most benefit to people is actually, or that people have most praise for in what they've done is um, that they know each other, that they know their neighbours. Um, the sorts of things that touch people at a heart level can, for, for a farmer, um, be realising and recognising um, the state of their land and that there's a situation where they don't have to be in debt. Um, hearing stories about farmer suicides, these sorts of things can be um, the wake-up that some people need because uh, they can see it happening um, so close to home. Uh, I think it's it's always movements made by real people. It's always movements made by um, by people that know the problem and are affected by the problem themselves. Uh, I'd like the we call it grassroots movements, but grass can be ripped out of the ground. Uh, I think they should be called mycelial movements. Because it's about connection. It's, a, it's actually these movements are what support the big trees in the first place. Then government doesn't exist. These big trees of government don't exist without the mycelium that supports it. And we are that mycelium. And without it, everything dies. 
So mm, I love that these, way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah. And as these um, movements that affect real people because they're made by real people, because they give us insight into um, into the things that different people are doing, that inspires change. And that inspires more people to realize that they can they can do, that it's not actually some higher up, it's not some outer power, it's actually someone doing something right next door to them that they can be involved in. And how about you, Jeff? What have been some of the concepts and the ideas that you found are really the ones that stick, especially in your international work, maybe transcending cultural uh, or historical backgrounds? What are the things that really hold on and take root in those communities? Well, it's all uh, health has always been uh, a big thing that's has driven people's desire to be involved, and 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 um, it, it's never really gone away from the early days, mm. um, and it's still very much there. Um, so you know, people wanting better health and being worried about their health, and seeing more evidence that um, things aren't going well um, as far as uh, modern lifestyles. Um, and now we have so much more evidence about nutrient density from having well-balanced and rich soil ecosystems and gut in ecosystems. There's so many links we're finding more and more between the soil ecosystem and the in, in, and the, and the ecosystem within our digestion, within mm. our guts. You know, from that. Yeah, the parallels are remarkable. Yeah, from anaerobic in the stomach all the way to aerobic in the colon and 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 ferments and 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 um naturally processed preserved food um whether it's brine ferment brine preserves or or or, or different types of processes and and fermentations or lactations and in all their different forms we're now finding their sort of inoculums of of health boosting situations this all links to herbalism as well which has always been there um but it's it's, it's just been chugging along underneath it all or, <laughs> or, or along with it um and, and we're involved in all of that and, and we're helping people with these things i mean obviously you know there's the peak oil the power you know the potential armageddon scenario and everything else that people are afraid of but but the one that really does anchor is is your personal health, um, the way the health of your friends affect you and the health of your family affects you, mm. um, and 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 when people realise they don't just get healthy but they get vital, um, they start to function, um, you know their energy levels go up. Um, this this is something that that it, it's 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 on the rise again. The evidence is there. It, it, it's on the rise again and. You know, even in, in, in developing countries where there hasn't been such an awareness of health and, and there hasn't been the same pe people have been connected to traditional diets, as those diets have changed, but the information age has, has, has come in at the same time, um, people are fast-tracking into health consciousness. Mm. And a story for um, the Hope of Health is a recent uh, design that you got I'm given yeah. to do. Do you want to? Do you want to say? Yeah, one of my students from the last online course, or a few online courses back, um, is uh, high up in Southwest Queensland Health and Hospital Department, has asked um, me to consult for the Department of Health 
Um, this is a large area of southwest Queensland. It's hard to imagine, but it's it, it's it's probably um, not far off, not much smaller than the area that, than the size of Guatemala. Um, has got a large population, but it has a large agricultural population and 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 towns that are well spread apart. And and they've realised they've got to use they've 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 realised that permaculture is a system that they could use to make their health health department efficient and concentrate on wellness to preempt illness mm. because they just can't afford the infrastructure um, to be put in position for these people that are spread over remote areas of southwest Queensland. So this is not physical design. This is organizational design using permaculture principles. Now, that's something very hopeful. That's something very exciting and something quite unique for me. And um, I've got plenty of people in my team that can help me on those sort of community consultation processes. But um, that's, that's people thinking a completely different way about using permaculture design to create a better scenario from what at present is a failing government-funded situation mm. certainly yeah and like you said so many of these connections come out of when you start with the fundamental education of recognizing patterns in nature learning to work with energy flows and sort of build resilience and fertility within the landscape and as you mentioned too the way the micro sort of follows the macro the internal environment of the human body has so many similarities with that of the external world. And once you get uh, an education in these fundamentals, then it's kind of you've opened up Pandora's box and it's just a matter of learning the intricacies within the techniques that can really take these things into uh, a higher level of functioning, whether it's food production and, uh, like you said, fermentation and different methods of preserving, or whether you go into the health aspect, they're all really well connected. And within that concept, before I let you guys go, can you let all of our listeners know how they can best contact you? And Jeff, if you'd like to talk a little bit about some of your educational opportunities coming up as well. Yeah. Um, I, I'd just like to say, if I may, just to finish off there, when I go into an area, I actually look at the health records of people. I want to know what they're dying of. I want to know what, you know, wh what their sicknesses are. And I want to know how long they live. Um, so this area of southwest Queensland where I, I'm, I'm going to be doing this design for the health department, people live five to ten years, they die five to ten years younger than they do in the in the cities of Australia and the Aboriginal community 10 to 15 years younger. And there's a reason for that. And you look at the health records and there it is. So, you know, when you go into areas for aid, if you look at the health records, we are the guinea pigs. We can see, you know, you can see what the morbidity figures are. Um, what the health records are. So these are things we can study. And and what people are starting to realize is that your body doesn't just absorb insoluble food. It's transferred through the organisms in your gut mm. if it's real food. Now, you can take um, – you can take refined foods in like soluble fertilizer is soaked in through the roots of plants because they have to drink. Um, you, you are forced. I mean, you can't help but absorb such processed foods. And this is where obesity comes from. And now it's becoming very, very obvious that uh, healthy gut organisms are the ones that do the transactions 
and um, we have to keep them alive like it's a it's an like you say it's internal ecosystem so it is important for your listeners to realize this i mean it's not rocket science it's not simple though and it's an interesting complexity that can you can really benefit from starting to develop an understanding for so um i and i'm sure i speak for sam here as well our main concern is 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 creating health healthy people so we can all create a healthy planet um my my um educational components that i'm very uh, much involved in right now is jefflawtononline.com um it's my main website everything's folding in underneath that um my uh, jeff lawton public figure um facebook page um jeff lawton online uh uh, dot com has lots of free videos um i also have what's called a friday five which is you can link to on jefflawtononline.com which is uh, i send out a newsletter with five interesting points and keep people up to date with books i'm reading things i'm interested in uh comments i want to make about um the world um uh, some beautiful some not so great uh, things some I think people want to learn about. <laughs> some might be even funny, um, but it's just like, yeah, that's you, a great one. I look forward to that every week. You do oh, good. We put a lot of effort into it. We we try and make uh, you know make it sort of uh, something that's worth worth reading and and getting in touch with. So that's that's me. <laughs> um, I'm uh, I've got nothing for you. I'm sorry, Oliver. <laughs> no worries. I know you're doing a lot of work in uh, the learning process there, and that's fantastic. So thank you both so much for your time today and your insights from the different ends of the perspective and the journey through ecosystem regeneration and permaculture knowledge that you're both on. I've really had a great time speaking to you both, and I hope that perhaps we can do a follow-up and check in again at a later date. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page, to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.